Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 56, recorded on June 3rd, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you from Cortez, Colorado, and it's great to kick things off with a Linux hardware story. Yeah, the Atari VCS, which I think we talked about on one of the very first episodes of Linux Action News, that is finally on Indiegogo. And it's doing incredibly well. They've smashed through their target. So this thing is definitely happening. Smashed it, they have, Joe. They've raised 2,418% of their original $100,000 goal as we record this episode. And something tells me it's going to go up from there. You might kind of remember this story because it was teased as the Atari box in June of 2017 by Atari at E3. Now we have a little more information, and I thought it would be interesting to go into the background of it, because the Atari VCS really started as the brainchild of an individual who joined Atari with the intention of releasing a box like this after his observations of players that were connecting laptops to televisions to play games on larger screens, and then were using things like Skype and Twitter to do multiplayer gaming communication. He thought they, they had good brand recognition with this group. If they could put something in a box together that they could sell, it might actually have some demand. Lots of speculation online by YouTubers and others if anything like this could ever be successful, but this funding seems to indicate there is a massive audience for this. 9,321 backers as of this recording. And so why are we talking about this? Because it's going to run Ubuntu, or at least an operating system that is based on Ubuntu. Yes, specifically they named Ubuntu Linux. Now the original details of this box also, back in 2017, kind of indicated that Linux was going to be under the hood. The hardware is nice. It's a x86 platform. It's going to use an AMD CPU and an AMD graphics unit. And it's a custom AMD A10 CPU. And it has about the performance of a mid-range 2017 gaming desktop. So in 2018 or 2019, when this thing ships, it's not going to be the most competitive hardware spec-wise. But like most consoles, that's not the only feature of the box. Yeah, it's only got 4 gigabytes of RAM as well, which even in 2018 feels a little bit low. And I think next year, when this actually ships, that's going to be even lower, isn't it? It's going to seem like very old specs, but if you are using this thing to play old emulated games, then that's going to be plenty. But if you're kind of looking to play more modern games and it is going to support Steam, then you're going to be pretty limited in terms of what you can play with it. Yeah, it's not really clear on that part. So there's a couple of things in here that piqued up my interest. They said that you're going to have access to the, quote, Linux sandbox, and you can add more storage via cloud or USB, and you'll be able to run multiple operating systems, quote, at once, load homebrew games, and customize your own unique platform. That's ambiguous, but the language seems to indicate that this thing is going to be somewhat hackable by the community, even if it is within certain confines like a VM. Uh, they also indicate that there's going to be some large partner that will, quote, thrill gamers that they can't announce yet, but it's in the works, and by the time this box ships... They'll apparently have a partnership with an additional game library. I would love for that to be somebody like GOG, who has a bunch of great old games, could go perfect on an Atari system like this. But it's funny that they point out several times that this thing's running Linux, and they use the word Linux and open source, and then they proudly say that their UI is a proprietary Atari UI on top of it. It's a very strange juxtaposition there. Yeah, it's because they're proud of their branding and the artwork and the retro look and feel they think they've come up with. They're really, they think they've nailed that. Yeah, it does look really cool, especially the wooden one, which is slightly more expensive. 
Um, but even the black one that's a couple of hundred dollars if you buy it um, or if you back it soon, that's that looks pretty cool as well. But looking down the uh, the details of this, there were a couple of red flags, I'm afraid. One of them was that they talk about Linux Ubuntu, uh, which is like, okay, mm, fair enough. Uh, and they don't mention what version of Ubuntu. But then if you dig down a bit further, it says that it's going to be based on the 4.10 kernel, which uh, I hope that that is a mistake by them, in a communication mistake, because the 4.10 kernel is going out of support. Well, it has gone out of support. And the only Ubuntu version that shipped with 4.10 was 17.04, which, as we know, is out of support as well. So surely that was just a, a mistake and maybe a prototype, and they're going to be basing this thing on Ubuntu 18.04. Please. Hmm. Maybe. Uh, Ubuntu Core, th the distribution itself, is based on 16.04 right now. So that would be a pretty good step. It would be, I guess, a downgrade if they're on 17.10 in some senses, but... I would be willing to bet that's not going to change. That seems to be the way these things go, and that's a version 2 problem to solve. What, so you seriously think they're going to ship this thing with an out-of-date kernel and an out-of-date OS that isn't supported and, and take on the burden of all of the support, rather than basing it on an Ubuntu LTS and just having all that taken care of for them, and then they only have to worry about their bits? Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know. I think that would be a mistake if they didn't take care of that before they ship this thing. And... Keep in mind, too, we're talking this time in 2019, so this thing is going to be even older by that point, and I think it's even more critical when you consider that. So I think you raise a really good point. Were there other red flags that you saw? Because I, I think that was the one that that was the singular one that caught my attention. So I'm curious if you saw others. The other red flag was they talked about Secure Boot. Now, if that is using a standard EFI where you can turn Secure Boot off and then boot whatever you want on it, then that's all well and good. But otherwise. You mentioned VMs, that might be the only way you can run an alternative operating system on this. And the fact that it may well be running an outdated uh, version of Ubuntu and an old kernel means that people are quite likely to want to be able to hack this thing. And if it's not completely hackable, then that's just going to suck, I think. I think this is going to be the device that has the most potential. If you look at this category of hardware boxes, the NVIDIA Shield, I think, could also be in this category. Atari's hinting that this thing's going to be a video streaming platform machine as well. And that's where it has some serious potential, in my estimation. If you could throw Kodi and Plex and Embi and a couple of choice streaming apps onto this thing, then all of a sudden you've got yourself a real winner. And realistically, you could solve most of those just by allowing the Kodi app. And I suspect, having looked into the background of the individual who's really driving this project at Atari, I think they're clever enough to recognize that. They sort of looked at the Ouya. I don't know if you remember that tiny little arm cube, the Ouya, that was going to be the big gaming platform for and based on Android. Uh, the individual behind, behind the Atari box and now the VCS is trying to really grok a lot of lessons from their failure. And he identifies a few of them in, in different talks, and uh, I, I think he's dead on. So I think their fundamentals are good here. I think they're going to allow some customization. We just don't have the answers because I think, like you may have just sussed out, the person that wrote this up doesn't really have any, any idea about what they're writing. Um, the few other things that sort of I thought were interesting, USB-C for charging the peripherals, it has uh, a really interesting design that I think is worth going to look at the Indiegogo page and check it out for yourself the way they've put this thing together. And it's 
potentially, if you're down with some retro gaming and you want a media box to do some streaming, maybe just going to be good on its own as it is now. So with that in mind, uh, I backed it. I don't normally do this anymore. In fact, I kind of have taken a break for about two years from backing anything on on uh, on fundraisers. But I I got a pretty good feeling that Atari is going to pull this thing off. And they they say in their fact, this really is a pre-order in a sense because they have units. They're now just trying to get a feel for the market's interest. If that's true or not, who knows? But I have a pretty good sense they're going to actually deliver. So I I backed the collector's edition, the one that comes with the limited wood insert on the front and back, which reminds me of the original Atari, so I had to go for that. I just got the one with the joystick because I figured I'm going to give this thing a go. It's a Linux box. I could potentially replace an Android NVIDIA Shield TV with this in my home, and I'd be a lot happier running something that's based on Ubuntu than I am Android TV. And, uh, you know, then I can share my experiences with the audience. We'll see what happens. Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing your review of it in a year's time. (laughs) (laughs) So things are not looking too good for Endless. At least three of their employees have been let go, I assume made redundant, including Michael Hall, who used to be the community manager over at Ubuntu, working for Canonical, and then he moved over to Endless and he's been doing great work over there. I mean, you just were talking about a post that he made recently on Linux Unplugged, weren't you? And now suddenly he's announcing on Twitter that he's looking for another job. And if you dig into it a little bit deeper, you see that he is not alone. There are a fair few other people. And uh, it looks like Endless are in trouble, I think, which is uh, a bit of a shame. This really caught me by surprise because on May 15th, Michael Hall had just posted the news about Endless 3.40, the big new update to Endless, which brought in a whole bunch of new stuff, including a newer version of GNOME, new applications, a new effort to build Android apps that tie in back to the Endless desktop. It really seemed like things were moving in the right direction. So just a few days later, to see him announce his availability for hire, as he put it, uh... I was surprised. This isn't totally uncommon in the startup world. These things happen. They change direction. They pivot, as they say. But it is a little concerning when the community manager is laid off. That's kind of sending a message about some of their future intentions. Yeah, well, it looks like they just haven't been able to continue to get the investment that they needed. They've had a fair bit of VC funding over the last few years, and it looks like that's dried up. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not hugely surprised about that because their whole business model was based on an operating system that was aimed at the developing world for laptops or desktops. And the only products they've ever sold are kind of NUC-type devices, you know, that need extra peripherals. And they're trying to sell that to a market that skipped the whole desktop x86 computing generation and went straight for mobile. So how can they possibly hope to get a foot in that market when that market doesn't even really exist there? They've, they've well moved on from that. They, they never even had it in the first place. It just seems like maybe the VCs have finally woken up to the fact that it's just not a very good idea. I think maybe you've honed in on the issue. You know, Michael Hall said something interesting to me when I had him on Linux Unplugged to talk about Endless. And that was that the company had recently discovered that their offline uh, bunch of information that you can get to without having to go on the internet, like, say, all of Wikipedia and lots of things like that, was really useful in prisons. That prisons were interested in their hardware-software combo 
because they could give inmates access to information, but they wouldn't necessarily give them access to things that would, uh, quote unquote, trigger them or uh, influence them. And uh, when he said that to me, it hit me like a wave, like that must be in the United States, a huge market, a company could get very rich, super serving that niche, because it's a big industry here in the States. And so you have to wonder if perhaps maybe as Endless is becoming more and more aware to this, that the traditional community outreach and those aspects of the business are becoming de-emphasized and the business contacts and getting into those types of setups where there is considerable funding are perhaps being emphasized. That's total speculation on my part, but it does kind of jive with uh, your total speculation, so I like it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. All we've got is speculation because we haven't heard anything official from Endless at this stage. They've not made a statement about it. And so what else is there to do but speculate? And this is a real shame because... If you look at the technicalities of the project, it's actually really interesting, isn't it? Using OS tree and a modified GNOME and everything, it is a very interesting project, but I just don't think that it has its audience, apart from this prisons thing, which I'd forgotten about. But that, yeah, maybe they can make that happen because there is quite a lot of money to be made there. So hopefully that's what they're doing, pivoting away from the developing world to... U.S. prisons, and the rest of us can benefit as a result. You know, I don't make any promises because I'm on the road and connectivity and time are very limited, but I'm going to try to contact Endless and get a comment on the recent layoffs and uh, our speculation in the show and see if they want to put anything on the record, and we'll do an update if they do. But I'm betting for now it's going to be mum's the word. Yeah. Well, speaking of GNOME, something that caught my eye this week was a story on Phoronix. Uh, about something that came out of the GNOME 2018 Performance Hack Fest. And that was a comment from Eric Anholt, who essentially said that GNOME 3 is just too heavy to run on a Raspberry Pi. Despite the various improvements they've made with regards to the graphics stack and all the rest of that, it's just too fat. Right, and Eric is Broadcom's maintainer of the VC4 and V3D graphics driver stacks. So it's it's with some authority that he makes this comment. And when you read the quote, which we'll have a link in the show notes, linuxactionnews.com slash 56, it is not even partisan. It's just sort of, this is the facts. He says, ultimately, I'm skeptical of GNOME 3 ever being usable on a Raspberry Pi. The clutter-based GNOME shell painting is too slow. 60% of a CPU is burned in the shell just trying to present a single 60 frames per second GLX gear. And there doesn't seem to be a plan for improving it other than maybe delete clutter someday. Also, the JavaScript extension system being in the compositor thread means that you drop application frames when something else happens in the system. Network state change, a notification, etc. This was a bad software architecture choice. And digging out of that hole is going to take a long time. I'm agnostic on whether it was wrong to move those into the same process as the compositor. But the same thread was definitely wrong. I'll keep working on the debugging tools to try to enable anyone to work on these problems, though. Like maybe uh, the folks at Purism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are two reasons that this caught my attention. One was obviously the Lieberman 5, which Purism are working on, which is an ARM-based device, not a massively high-end one. But also, if you have been following the news about what Microsoft have been up to, they've been shipping these ARM-based Windows laptops now. and. ARM is the future. It's the present. 
And x86, okay, that is still going to be around for professionals and developers. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to use that. But consumer machines are moving over to ARM, I think. And GNOME just doesn't seem to be suitable for those types of machines. You know, I've been thinking about this because we've been talking more and more about this. And I think what we're witnessing is the conflux of a huge expansion in the GNOME user base as 18.04 and 17.10 shipped and the Ubuntu users moved over. And we're also seeing this quicker and quicker pace towards ARM and getting more and more things to work on ARM systems. And that's also exposing a bunch of issues. And at the same time, we're moving to Wayland. And that's making us rethink a whole bunch of architecture stuff. And these things, these pressures are all pushing against GNOME Shell at the same time right now. And something's got to give. And it's, it's resulting in a lot of conversation about performance, drawbacks, and limitations of the design of GNOME. And I don't know where we go from here because right now it's a massive desktop that's shipping on pretty much every professional grade, quote unquote, distro. You don't know where we go from here? Well, get my troll face on Plasma, surely, and, and cute generally. <laughs> yeah, although it does seem like the upstream market, the curators of the desktop have made their decision, and GNOME and GTK it is. Thankfully, it's trivial for those of us who care to make a change. Like, I'm running Plasma everywhere now. Got family on it, too. I've just gone crazy with how great it is. I love it, love it, love it. And it was a big refuge after getting very frustrated with my GNOME desktop. I still think it's a great project, and I really hope they do pull it out because they have some great designers, they have some great ideas, and they have a ton of market momentum. So just for the desktop to be successful, I hope they pull this thing out. But in the meantime, yeah, I'm living in Plasma land. Last.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. When you use less, you pay less. And when you need more, you just pay for what you use. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay for. It's $6 per line. You want one phone? $6 a month. You want two phones? Guess what? $12 a month. It's really straightforward and simple. You know, I almost always have about a $40 a month Ting bill. And that's with several phones on my bill. That's because I'm always on Wi-Fi. And I don't like to make phone calls. But on these road trips, I end up using some Ting data. And it, you know, it, it ends up being like 10 or 15 bucks more that month. But man, does that wash out across the 11 months that I'm not doing that. And the thing about Ting is they have GSM and CDMA network. And I like to use the best tool for the job. And I, I came into this, the spot I'm parked in right now in, in, um, Cortez, Colorado. And I thought for sure, it's going to be the GSM. I'm going to go with the GSM signal. I jumped on there and I had about a negative 110 dB. It wasn't very great. It was usable though. About 110 millisecond ping to the Google servers. Not great for VoIP calls and doing shows. So I thought, you know what, I'll just give the CDMA network a try. I pop over, I have a Nexus 6P, so I pop over to on my Nexus 6P on the CDMA network Heck, if I'm not getting negative 80 dB right now, and I've got full bars, and Joe and I have been sitting here having this entire conversation over my Nexus 6P on the Ting CDMA network tethered to my laptop. And right now, I'm getting 50 milliseconds as I ping the Google DNS server. I love the flexibility of Ting. And as a small business owner who's on the road, I would never go with anything else. Having that choice between GSM and CDMA means the difference between us having a smooth conversation or having a choppy show. And that makes all the difference. Check it out. Lass.ting.com. Let's talk about Huawei and them locking down their bootloaders. 
traditionally, Huawei have been pretty good with having their phones be unlockable and then you can flash all sorts of custom ROMs on them. And they've always been fairly affordable as well. So they've been quite popular among people who want to run things like Lineage OS, but don't necessarily want a flagship. Well, that has all changed now because they've decided to not give people the codes to unlock their bootloaders anymore. And if you've got an existing device, then you've got under two months, I think, at this stage to get one. And then they'll just cut you off and any new devices won't get one. So official advice, if you want to run custom ROMs, is don't buy a Huawei. This seems like a really strange about face because Huawei was considered one of the go-to brands for ROM flashing. In fact, for years, they had forums open where people were discussing this. Uh, They made it fairly easy to get the bootloader information for each of the device. They even had support pages that would go through the process of how to unlock. And then things like about a month ago started to change. The pages went away and then You could email support and they would reply with some steps and maybe the unlock code that you needed. And then that stopped. And then we have this official policy, anything sold after May 25th, 2018, this is going to be the new policy going forward. And I don't know what to make of this other than they must have gotten burned somehow. The support costs must have been too high and they're making changes or they were pressured into making a change. I'd be curious to know what the audience's speculation is too. What, are you speculating Google might have done this to them? I don't know. You know, you've got this new update process that's a, that was announced at Google I.O. that sounds pretty great. We just talked about it, and there's some new requirements to sign. Maybe there's some, I don't know. I'm just speculating, but maybe there's some suggestions from Google that to really secure the device and make sure these updates are the right ones and that people aren't getting malicious ROMs or something like that. You have to make these steps, I and mean, they could make a good case and the larger consumer market doesn't really care about this. So that makes it a low-risk change for them to make. I don't know. I, I don't like all the speculation. I could be totally off base. But something seems off here because it's a big change from dedicated support pages on how to unlock devices to no more unlocked devices going forward. Hard stop. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in there by saying that almost nobody cares about this. I think the kind of people who are listening to this show probably do. But the general public can't even conceive of the idea of putting a different operating system or ROM on their phone. They they don't even know what that means. And so the vast majority of people who would buy a cheap Huawei phone or even a high-end one, they're just buying it to use as a phone. And it always seems strange to me when people do that. They buy a phone and just don't look whether it's supported by Lineage first before buying it and stuff. But that's just what normal people do. And so I don't think that they're going to lose any customers over this, or the very few customers, and they obviously just don't value those customers. See, that's where I think their mistake is. That's a very valuable customer base because where do you get any new ideas other than watching what the fringe of your users are doing? Watch the fringe user base, see how they're pushing their devices, see what crazy things they're adding to their custom ROMs to make their devices better. And then you, as an OEM, can sit back and watch that and and cherry-pick the best ideas And then you integrate that into your product offerings that you sell to all the mainstream consumers. And boom, all of a sudden you offer something that's truly different than the rest of all of the other Android handsets on the market. And I I don't know how you get there without supporting ROM communities. I grant you there's a support cost to supporting the ROM community and making sure that stuff works. And when their devices break and they try to make warranty claims, there are costs there and perhaps they're great. I don't know. I doubt it if it's a small community to begin with. 
it seems like the insights you get from them, watching the things they do with their devices, outweigh that support cost. But what do I know? I don't make phones. Well, let me counter that by saying, first of all, you don't have to be looking at the custom ROMs on your own phones to see the innovation. You could just buy a couple of pixels or whatever and flash the latest ROMs and, and see what the community is doing on other people's hardware. And also in terms of them being valuable customers, well, not really, because the kind of person who's going to flash custom ROMs on their phone are the kind of person who is not just going to buy a new one all the time. They're going to try and extend the life of it with custom ROMs. So really, it makes sense that they don't care about that portion of the market, I think. Well, then we're all just going to have pixels. See, somebody has to support these communities, to, and somebody has to be the one watching them to uh, put those features forward. So if they don't do it, somebody else will. That's their loss. And if, if what you say is true, then uh, it sounds like the lifespan of custom ROMs is limited anyways, and they're just making a, the right move. That's depressing, and I don't like it. Well, speaking of depressing, Samsung won a court case in the Netherlands, and so now they're not going to be forced to update their old phones for four years. Isn't this something yeah, a consumer group went after Samsung for not distributing updates in a timely manner? And their basic argument was... Samsung should be like a car manufacturer. And if a car manufacturer is making so many models of cars that they can't produce them safely, then they should stop and produce fewer models and variations of cars until they narrow the scope to something that they can support properly. I thought that was an interesting argument. They took that to the court and the judge said, thank you, but no thank you. The court ruled in Samsung's favor and said that the claims that were made by that consumer group were inadmissible because they related to future acts that Samsung may or may not make. And we have no idea what the future holds. So the judge said, go along. No, thank you. A very spurious argument, I think. And it makes you wonder who had the better lawyers here. You would imagine Samsung, obviously, with all the money they've got. <laughs> I think Samsung's lawyers have better lawyers than the consumer group's lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. But it's just a bad state of affairs, isn't it? That loads of these manufacturers sell these phones that never get updates. And we seem to bang on about it all the time, but this jumped out at me as a potential opportunity to say to them, no, you can't get away with this. You have to supply security updates at the minimum. And they're just not interested in doing it. And it seems that maybe the courts in this case didn't understand the implications of what they were talking about. And maybe it was a bit uh, beyond them because I just don't see how they lost really, apart from that, having the more expensive lawyer situation. Well, see, Samsung sees it the other way. They told the BBC that they were satisfied with that ruling and that the judge has acknowledged that Samsung is doing more than enough to ensure safety of its products. Uh, stop right there, though. It's interesting that this is starting to be discussed more and more as a safety issue. I think this should be looked at the way you can have flaws in consumer electronics, like a toaster that could catch your house on fire. You can have flaws in your phone that can expose your private information or your nudie pics. And further, in that statement they released to the BBC, they say, quote, It's a pity that the court route taken by the consumer group has unjustly cast our update policy in a negative light. And the ruling shows that we take the security of our smartphones we provide to consumers very seriously. So you see, Joe, Samsung says you're wrong. Yeah, I suppose I am wrong here. And something we were definitely wrong about last week is essential. They are not shutting down, according to Andy Rubin's leaked email. Yeah, definitely 
definitely not shutting down. I hope this is true. I do know one rule about about business financing, and uh, you can see you can see lots of other uh, business financing tip experts sharing this information freely online. You never say you're selling. You never say that. You can say you're raising funds. You can say you're going to get a loan, but you never say you're selling because then your value plummets and you're not going to get anything for the sale. So the strategy, especially with Silicon Valley type companies, is to be fundraising. And while you're fundraising, you might also then just slip into sales discussions. And uh, you can see lots of people talking about this online. So it's not really clear because... I saw that email that came out. What Andy Rubin said in there was essentially, we're not closing, but we are reconsidering the entire product lineup and we're going to try to get a big fatty loan from the bank. Uh, that could be industry speak for all options are on the table. Well, I hope that that's right. I hope that all options are there, including that they'll get some more financing and make some more phones because from everything I've heard about the essential phone, it is pretty good and it is very developer friendly and the complete opposite of samsung in terms of the security updates they're a model citizen so it would be a real shame if they were to go away yeah we did get some notes from some listeners that have the essential phone and they sold me on it i want one now so i hope they do keep <laughs> making them because it sounded like a really good phone and uh, like you said too they're the opposite of what we just talked about with samsung and huawei they're they're very develop developer friendly and and community friendly, which you really have to appreciate, especially from where we sit. So hopefully things are looking up. Let us know what you think about anything we've talked about today, including your take on any of the stories at linuxactionnews.com slash contact. And you mentioned that you're on the road, the road to Texas Linux Fest. Yep. Right now I'm just in the Four Corners area of the United States, but June 8th through the 9th, I'll be in the Austin area at Texas Linux Fest. We do have a Telegram group set up. If you want to join us, maybe grab some barbecue or just hang out, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Texas. And if you want to track where I'm at, maybe meet up in the route there or on the way back, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover, where I have an embedded tracker for you and the NSA. <laughs> Which is how I knew you were near the Four Corners Monument. Yeah. And the best way to get episodes every single week is to go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. And please consider supporting the entire network and all the things we do at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.